heard some singing voices that I knew. I didn't say it could be better. I just said I knew them. Don't have to apologize. Um, we've been going through Hebrews chapter 11, and we really haven't been um, going through every section of the chapter. What we've done is we kind of took an overview of Hebrews 11 on Sunday morning during our Bible class period. And then since then, we've been choosing one of those men or women of faith and going back and looking at their example and what we can learn from that example. Um, tonight, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to look at several at the same time. Uh, and there's a specific reason the Hebrew writer clusters them together. And let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And in just a second, we'll read verses 23 through 28. And just to refresh our memories, we've made the point as we go to Hebrews chapter 11. We've focused on verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. We came down to verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And we've made the, the point that these people of faith responded to the instruction or the command or the promises of God. God spoke, and because of what they believed about him, they trusted in him, even when they couldn't see the outcome or see the future, and they chose to move forward because of their trust in him. And that those demonstrations of trust had different earthly outcomes, some positive, some negative, but they had eternal reward. And they were looking forward to the day that Jesus would come and we would all be perfected together. So that's just highlighting the overview that we made. And we've talked about Sarah. We've talked about Noah. And let's go to verses 23 through 28 and read about another group of people. By faith, Abraham, I'm actually going to back up to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And if you, if you applied our approach so far this week, we'd look at each of those men, each of those four men individually, and say, what did their life say about faith? And I think there's value in that. But I'd like to make a larger point, because those four men are connected by successive generations. And what believer, if God has blessed them with children doesn't want to be able to pass their faith on to their children. I mean, they want the ability to do that. Or if you're a grandparent, you want your grandchildren to come to place their faith in Jesus. We pray for that. And we pray for our kids, and our kids hear us pray for them, that someday they'd become Christians, every single one of them. And then you look at this, and you're like, oh, they did it. What's the secret? <laughs> How are they able to do that four generations in a row? And I'm not sure what your family dynamic is. I mean, my father and my mother are both Christians. And I had one set of grandparents that had become Christians. One set never did. 
beyond them, I don't think they did. You know, how do you, how do, you do that? You might be in a family situation where you're the first in your family within your generations to be a Christian. And so how do you pass that along? How do you do that? I, I think there's a really helpful psalm that might give us some insight into what these men did and how their children responded to what those men did. We're going to talk about that dynamic in just a minute. So for the next little bit, let's turn in our Bibles to the Old Testament, to the Psalms, and let's turn over to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. And that psalm is written by Asaph. You know, there's some of the psalms are written by David, some are written by others. Asaph actually writes quite a few of the psalms. He's a music director. He's, he's a poet. He wrote, writes some beautiful things. Uh, he's got another psalm where he wrestles through when he sees the, what he perceives as the unfairness between bad people not being punished and good people being punished or living a hard life. And he says, that's not fair. How do I make sense of that if God is a just God? And it was Asaph who wrote that. Asaph writes this one. And we're not going to read the whole psalm. We'd be here really a really long time. I'd encourage you to do that later tonight. What I'd like us to do is to read the first eight verses, and then we're going to back up and take some points from that. So starting in verse 1, Asaph says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So, you have Asaph. And he's speaking to the congregation of Israel. And he tries to get their attention in a very dramatic way in the first verse. It's almost like a drill sergeant coming in during basic training. And he shouts, Hah! And everybody kind of jumps to attention. He comes in, give ear, incline your ears to the words of my, he's trying to get their attention. And there's a reason that he's doing this. Skip down to verse five. He says that God established a testimony in Jacob. You remember the point that we made about faith from Hebrews 11? It starts with God speaking. God speaks, we hear. We place our trust in him and respond in faith. What Asaph is saying is God has spoken to Israel. He has established a testimony in Jacob. He's appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Why is he starting this psalm in the first place? This psalm is one of Asaph's ways of fulfilling the command of verse 5. He's saying, everybody pay attention. I'm about to talk. I want everyone to hear what our fathers have taught because we're going to pass it on to the next generation. 
he established a testimony and appointed a law. Now, I want to make a bigger point about that. Turn over, keep your, keep your marker in Psalm 78. Let's go over to Exodus, Exodus 31. Exodus 31. Here you have God giving this law. Verse 18. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Right? Then you have the incident of the golden calf. Those tablets are broken. So you go over to Exodus 34, and you have another set that's put together. Verse 28, talking about Moses. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So Asaph is saying there's this, there's this moment where God communicated with his people and wrote it down. These tablets of testimony, the tablets of the law. some pretty big points here that I hope are helpful. We're going to catch our slides up. The first thing that Asaph does in verse 5, 78 and verse 5, back in Psalm, is he says, we need to start by telling our kids about what God has done with his people. That's what we start with. When you talk about God gave a testimony, well, when did he give that testimony? He gave that testimony when they met at Mount Sinai. Well, why were they at Mount Sinai? They were at Mount Sinai because God had delivered them from Egypt. And all of that goes together. And he commands, he commands parents to be the ones to teach their children about that. Let's go a little bit further back. Let's go a little bit further back in Exodus. Do you remember how the Ten Commandments start? In Exodus chapter 20, we usually start with verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, and all of these laws that have to do with um, an exclusive relationship with God, but that's not how the text starts. In, in chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. There's a connection that's supposed to be made here. When, when Asaph is telling these Jewish parents to teach their children the testimony, to teach them the law, he doesn't mean jump right into law one, law two, law three, because that's not how God started it. God started with, I am Jehovah, your God, the one who brought you out of Egypt. He starts with who he is and what he had done and then he goes into the specifics of the law. Think about it like this. If I were to go into a grocery store and I see some sweet young gentleman face down on a linoleum throwing a temper tantrum because he didn't get the cookie he wanted, and I start to explain to him, now remember, the rule in the grocery store is that you don't throw a temper tantrum when you don't get your way. Is that little kid going to obey the law that I reminded him of? But if my sweet little something is face down on a linoleum, pitching a fit, 
and I come along and say, now remember what we talked about in the car, you're not going to throw a fit in the grocery store. Why might my child respond? It's my child. We, we have a relationship there, and they understand there's an authority, and hopefully we have enough trust developed. They understand there's a relationship behind the instruction. And I think that's what God is doing when he's communicating through Moses here in Exodus 20. So when Asaph is telling these parents, look, we need to teach our kids the instructions of God, he's absolutely right. But he assumes that you're going to inherently be telling them about the God who gave the instruction. So you think about the things that we teach our kids, especially when they're really young in Bible classes. You know, 66, 66, 66 books in the Bible. We have them rattle off all the books of the Bible. And we have them memorize the apostles. And we have them memorize the judges. And there's a song for that. And we have them memorize the days of creation. These facts that's good. They need to know their facts. Like they're not going to get to where they need to get in the Bible if they don't know where books are. They need to know those facts. But they need to understand that those facts were communicated by a God who has done so much. So we need a balance. We need a balance as we instruct our children with the content, but then the God behind the content. They need both. And I think it's important as we look at Psalm 78, that the primary responsibility to communicate that is on the parents. Teach your children so that their children, and, and I say this almost every place I go and make this point, and I'm going to assume that you all know this. Look, Bible classes are great. They are a great supplemental tool. But if our kids are only being exposed to God's word when they come to the church house, there's something wrong. Because the primary responsibility for instructing and spiritually developing children is in their home. Now, I will say, I will say there's some, there are some kids that don't get it at home. And that's not on them. And those kids may only ever hear the gospel when they come to worship. Which is one of the values of us doing that. But ideally, if you have parents that are spiritually seeking and they claim to be disciples, then it's primarily our responsibility to be teaching them about who God is and about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So you start, you start with God's work. The first work, he established a testimony, he appointed a law, and he commanded parents to teach it to their children. And I get so excited that I don't keep the slide going. <laughs> Someone said this about Exodus 21 through 3 and seeing the God behind the law. In other words, the tables of the testimony begin not with a testimony about God's demand, but with a testimony about God's grace and power for the sake of the people he had chosen. I said that so much better than I did for the last five minutes. That's why it's up there. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back to Psalm 78. And let's back up for a second. Because we already pointed out that that's what Asaph is doing in the first four verses. He's taking this seriously, and he starts to do it in the first four verses. So in verse 4... 
He says, we will not hide them, talking about the things of God. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. What is he talking about? As we look at Asaph's example, what is he talking about? He's saying we need to teach our children about how incredible God is. You know, for the, for the Israelites, when they heard the word wonder, when I hear the word wonder, my brain goes into history. Seven wonders of the ancient world or seven wonders of the modern world. I, that, that's just where my brain goes when I hear the word wonder. But the word wonder in, uh, to a Hebrew mind made them think about the exodus and made them think about the miraculous things that God did to free them from the bondage of the Egyptians. It made them think about the waters being turned to blood. It made them think about the frogs. It made them think about the gnats. It made them think about the, the fiery brimstone that came down. It made them think about the darkness and the boils. It made them think about the death of the firstborn. It made them think about all of those things because they kept communicating it. They kept communicating that. We need to tell our children the stories of rescue and judgment and impressive acts of God. Someone said, in obedience to God, Asaph teaches the next generation about the greatness of God first, rather than just about what God expects of them. You have to have both. And I want to make sure we understand that. We say that right. Like, we can't just have this lopsided, this is who God is, who God is, who God is, and then never make application. But sometimes we jump to application, do this, don't do that, and the, the driving force behind it is gone because we've forgotten who God is. So it's a balanced approach. And I was having a conversation with someone about this on a more personal level. Have you ever communicated with your kids about the wonders and the glorious deeds he's done in your life? This is what I mean. I was talking to somebody who said, man, my life before I became a Christian, I didn't grow up in a religious home. I didn't grow up hearing the Bible. I didn't grow up hearing about God. My life was rocky, and it was rough, and it was broken and not pretty. I don't want my kids to do that, so I just never told them about it. That's a mistake. That's a mistake. Because if you're saying that on the other side of the gospel you're different, who gets the glory for that? And if you're saying there's some massive transformation in your life, it's because God worked in it. But you don't see how incredible it is if you don't understand how broken it was to start. Now, does that mean that you tell them every gory detail? No. And there's some things they just don't need to know. You don't need to glorify your past sin. But they need to know enough to have some kind of comprehension at an age-appropriate level. Look, this is where I was. This is where mommy and daddy were, and it just it wasn't good. But God brought us near. God forgave us. We were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified. And who we are right now, the mom and dad that you see, would never be this if it weren't for God. They need to hear that. And it's going to have the most impact coming from you. Look, I, I grew up, I was blessed. I grew up hearing that. I know how rough my dad's life was. I know how rough my mom's life was. I just, I know. And all of my siblings know. 
And we know that if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd have a really messed up family. But by the grace of God, our family's different and our parents were different, right? So we don't just communicate the glorious deeds of God from the past. They need to hear those because God chose to preserve those and share those with us for a reason. But we also need to bring it down on a personal level. This is what God has done for me. This is what God has done for me. Let's make that point a little stronger, okay? Let's, let's go back to Exodus again. I know we just keep going back to Exodus, but I'm okay with that. As, as God was preparing the Israelites for the Passover, go back to chapter 13. God was explaining the 10th plague is coming, the death of the firstborn. But if you guys do this thing that no one has ever heard of before, if you'll kill this animal, roast it, eat most of it, and then put its blood on the doorposts, then your firstborn will not die tonight. And so he explains how all that is supposed to go. He also explains, in the future, you're also going to have unleavened bread to help you remember how quickly this took place. You didn't have time for your bread to rise. So no leaven for the week leading up to all of that. And then he goes on to give them more instruction in Exodus 13. We'll start in verse 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. He's talking about the nation. In all the nation of Israel, this is a national uh, celebration, a national holiday. Unleavened bread. But then you get to verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me. When I came out of Egypt, the pronoun gets singular. National observation, personal application. Right? So as a Christian, I belong to the household of God. I belong to the body of Christ. He's delivered all of us. I'm one of the saved. But let me tell you about the day that I became a Christian and God saved me. Because that's really personal. I think that's an example of what Asaph is talking about. And then when you go back, let's go back to Psalm 78 and verses 2 and 3. Asaph kind of teases and says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. He's saying, look, our fathers did it for us. But he does this thing that, that initially, I think, for our culture, sounds kind of confusing and spooky. He says, I'm going to open up my mouth in a parable. I'm going to teach you something that's connected over here, a story alongside a truth. I'm going to utter dark sayings from of old. And when I hear dark sayings, my brain goes to the occult, like something mysterious and bleak. And, but that's not what he means. By dark sayings, he just means sayings that are hidden. There's no light of revelation on it. It seems kind of mysterious. And then he goes into verse 3. Things that we have heard and known, they're things that we already know. So what, what's this mysterious parable with dark sayings? Because he doesn't tell you. But if you read the rest of the psalm, if you read the rest of the psalm, he recounts the history of Israel and their relationship with God, and a cycle that they go through and go through and go through 
where they listen to God and then they don't listen to God. And then God shows mercy and then they listen and they don't listen to God. And God shows mercy and they listen and they don't listen. And God shows mercy. And the parable comes out to be this, asking two questions. With how good God is, why didn't Israel just trust him? Because they didn't. I mean, he delivers them, and then as they're on their way to the promised land, they question. And I want to go back. Oh, the leeks, the leeks in Egypt were to die for, like we were literally dying for them. But the leeks, the onions were so good. And then they start to complain. Did you bring us out here just to kill us? Is that why God brought us out here? Like they're the worst backseat drivers ever. They complain. They start sinning. Groups of them start dying. They question whether God can help them take the land. When they see how tall the inhabitants are, they have to stay out in the wilderness for 40 years for a whole generation of disbelieving people to die off. Why didn't they just trust him? Look at verses 40 and 41 of the psalm. I think these verses kind of summarize that part of the the riddle. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Like if anyone ever had the right to say, I'm turning this car around like it was God. But he didn't. And that's the second half of the parable. Why not? Because those people didn't deserve the mercy that he showed them. Why didn't he do that? Back up a couple of verses. Look at verse 38. Yet he, talking about God, yet he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. Have you ever heard someone say, boy, the God of the Old Testament is just so angry all the time. Judging people, people are dead all over the place, like God's an angry God in the Old Testament. God was angry in the Old Testament. I don't think he was constantly angry. He wasn't like the Hulk, my secret is, like that wasn't God. I think verse 38 helps us understand what God was all the time. God at his heart is not an angry vengeful God. At his heart, he's compassionate. At his heart, he's merciful. At his heart, he's gracious and patient. So this this riddle, we need to help our kids think through the riddle of Israel's rebellion and God's mercy. Guys, why why did the Israelites do that? Well, because they were selfish and they stopped believing in God and they stopped loving God like they should. But why did God keep? Because God at his heart is patient. God at his heart is merciful. Now, God will get to the point where his patience runs short and it's done. And in his justice and holiness, he has to act. And you can go look at all of the major and minor prophets to make that point. But at his heart, he wants people to turn. It's who God is. So we want to follow Asaph's example. Teach the deeds and the wonders of God, both in the the characters of the Bible's lives. And when I mean characters, I don't mean that they're fictional. I just mean there's a lot of them in a written piece of work. Okay, But also tell them about the wonders and the deeds that God has accomplished in your life, where your faith was tested and God came through because he's faithful. And then help them think through the riddle of Israel's rebellion and the awe of God's mercy.
Come down to verses, uh, we'll do 5 through 8 of Psalm 78. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. We've already talked about that. But then in verse 6, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. I think we need to prioritize God's aims. If we're going to teach the next generation about faith, then we need to prioritize God's aims. God gets to set the agenda, not me. And Asaph spells out at least three things here. Look at verse 6. That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. We want to impart genuine knowledge of God. We want them to know God. And this is, this is the point where we have a conversation about the responsibility of parents and the responsibility of kids. All right, and I'm going to use an example from my own past that I've shared with my kids. So, you know, typically when most people go through school, depending on if they're right brain and left brain and all of the kinds of stuff, they have a, a section of education that they lean toward as a strength. Some people are usually better with science and math, and some people are usually better with English and literature and history. Because of what I do, guess, guess which way I lean, right? It is not the math side. Guess who teaches math and algebra at my house? My wife not me. So when I was in high school and it was time to get into Algebra 1, plunked. Had to take it twice. It was not pretty. It was rough. That was a rough year for my mom and I because she loved math. She's like, I have a kid that doesn't love what I love. She's like, I don't. Like, I'll go beyond it. I hate it. Had to do it twice. Was it a failure on my mom's part? I tried to make her feel like it was, but it really wasn't. Like, I didn't want to learn it. And we got to the point in, our, in the year where we were about halfway through, we realized I was so far off the trajectory for finishing on time. And she just flat out said, look, I can do this all day long, but if you don't want to put in the work, it's just not going to happen. So I'm going to keep coming to the table, but if, and you can come to the table, but if you don't engage and do it, we're going to come back to this next year. And guess what we did? We came back to it the next year. Teaching is not the same thing as learning and knowing. You could have great teachers, fantastic teachers, world-renowned, but if a child doesn't want to learn and comprehend, they won't. Now, that doesn't remove the responsibility from us as parents to do our best to teach and to try to accommodate the strengths and weaknesses of each of our kids as we try to impart faith in God. But at some point, the responsibility is going to fall on them. Whether their parents did well or not, they have, they're going to be responsible for whether they grabbed it or not. They're going to be responsible for whether they accepted it or not. There's a huge chasm between teaching and knowing. So as parents, let's do what we can on our end to teach in a way that's winsome and beautiful 
and, and accommodates the differences of our children. But remember, kids, at some point, it's on you to accept it. And it's on you to choose it. And you're the only one who can do that. But look at verse 7. You do that so that they should set their hope in God. I want my kids to hope in God. I don't want my kids to put their hope in me. I am broken. I still make mistakes. I mean, I'm being remade in the image of Christ, and I'd like to say I'm more like Christ now than I was when I was first converted. Nearly 30 years ago. I would hope there's been some growth and transformation since then. According to my father-in-law, there has been, because he's known me that long. But I'm still broken. I don't want my kids to put their ultimate hope in me. I want them to put their ultimate hope in God. Because God's not broken. He's perfect. He'll never let them down, whereas I will. And God can be there even when I'm not. And God has promises that transcend life here. Mine don't. You know, I want them to come to know the God of their father, not their father as God. We want their hope to be in God. We need them to learn to put their hope in God, not fallible men. Someone said this. It was a, a gentleman that was teaching a parenting workshop, and he was just about done. And towards the end, he was taking questions, and someone asked the question, because this guy has written so many books. And they said, hey, did you expect your, Christian, your children to become Christians? And he just stopped, and everyone <laughs> zeroed in on him. And his answer was perfect. His answer was, the gospel is beautiful, and God calls those whose hearts are open. That's a weird answer to a question. Yes or no? It was a perfect answer because he said, the gospel is beautiful, which it is, and those who are looking for God, those who are seeking God, will respond to it. He's saying at the end of the day, my kids becoming Christians is between my kids and God. Now, I can do things to help or hurt that process. I can do what I can do to try to increase the potential of a good outcome. But at the end of the day, the gospel is beautiful and God calls those who have good, good hearts. It's going to come down to my, my kid's heart. Not every child is going to choose faith. You know how I know that for certain? Because we have a heavenly father who's perfect that has rebellious kids. God has never made a parenting mistake, ever. But there are some of his children that have not chosen him, or they chose him and they left him, and they haven't come back yet. Does that mean that God is a failure as a parent? Absolutely not. So if that's true then I need to do the best that I can, pray for God's forgiveness for when I fall short, seek my children's forgiveness when I fall short, but at the end of the day, it's going to be between my kids and God. They are not going to be able to stand before God and say, well, I'm not here because my dad. They're not going to be able to do that. Look at verse 7 again. Psalm 78 and verse 7. And we're still on Zoom. Psalm 78 and verse 7. 
They should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. There is still an expectation with everything else that we've said that God still expects his children to obey. And we want to teach our kids to be willing to obey, to submit to what God has to say. And that comes through faith and trust, everything that we've been talking about this weekend. John, you might want to jump up and take care of that. Do I have it? I have the hose. <laughs> that's the first time this whole meeting that that has happened that means someone's on there let's go back to Hebrews 11 let's go back to Hebrews 11 I want to read that section just one more time starting in verse 17 with Abraham by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And he did that toward his family because he believed that his family would live to see the day of the exodus. But I want you to see something there about the focus that all four of those men had on the spiritual benefit and future of their family. They're thinking about a life of faith and encouraging them to have lives of faith. They want them to know their God. They want them to know what their God has done. And we mentioned earlier, some people have the blessing of, of growing up in a family of faith. Some people don't. And what you might be is if you grew up without that blessing, you might be the first link in a chain of people who trust in God. You might be the first. Maybe you didn't have the blessing directly, but at, at some point in your life, some way, God used someone to teach you the gospel. And just like Paul with Timothy, that person was your father or mother in the faith. And they started a process that you can keep trying to duplicate. You can start something new with your family right now. And I really appreciate my dad's humility when he's told every single one of my siblings and I, do better than us. Like, my dad never thought that he had reached the pinnacle of discipleship. He's still changing and growing. And he wanted us to learn to do better than him. And I want my kids to do better than me. And I want my grandkids, if God blesses me with those, to do even better than that. But it starts with you seeing God for who he is and choosing to trust in him. And if you're not a Christian yet tonight, I hope that you understand through the course of this meeting, if you've been here for multiple nights, just how great God is how incredible his deeds are and how wondrous his deeds are and that he's worth trusting. 
And if you've come to that point, we hope that you realize that Jesus is his son and that he died for you. And we would like you, along with God, to profess your faith in Jesus and that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to atone for your sins, that you'd like to be baptized with Christ and to be raised to walk a new life, that by faith you trust that what the work that God will accomplish in baptism. And maybe you're already a disciple, but you realize you haven't been trusting him as much as you thought. And more specifically, if you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, maybe you're being convicted about, I need to do a better job teaching the kids in my family.